If you'll take your Bible with me today and if you'll open to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you're a guest today, you've come with somebody for the Memorial Day weekend, let me just tell you that we are in a series of messages that come from 1 Corinthians. Actually, we'll be spending a good portion of this year when we're not talking about other things. We'll be looking at 1 Corinthians. And today, we come again to 1 Corinthians, and we're in chapter 10. And we're going to be looking at the first 13 verses of this chapter in just a few minutes. So let's bow our heads together for a moment. Let's ask the Lord's leadership and his guidance in these next few minutes together and pray that the Lord will speak to our hearts. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for these that are here. We know that we have a lot that are traveling. We pray, Lord, for their safety. We pray, Lord, for them to have time of rest and we look forward to them returning. We have graduating students that are off on trips celebrating their graduation and we certainly rejoice with them and are happy for them. And Lord, we just pray now for us who are here, those that are watching by live stream. We pray, Lord, that today will be a day when we recognize uh, your presence and that, Lord, you will speak to our hearts today in a powerful way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I want to begin today by taking you on a quick tour Imagine that I'm your tour guide and you're going with me for a few minutes back to the city of ancient Corinth and the things aren't all destroyed and the buildings aren't all down and there aren't just the little bit of ruins here and there that you might be able to find. Instead, there is a bustling city that's functioning and it's active and there's lots of activity, lots of commerce that's going on. And I want to take you for just a few moments as we begin today back to that city because in understanding something about the city, you'll understand better what Paul is saying here in these first 13 verses of chapter 10. Uh, Corinth was a very wealthy city. Uh, they didn't have any problem with uh, finances. Commerce was the primary reason for that. Uh, they had two ports. In one of those ports, you could go to Asia. The other port would take you to Italy. And because of those two ports, there was constant trade that was coming and leaving. Uh, that brought people as well coming and leaving. Because Corinth was an isthmus, a uh, small territory of ground between two larger bodies of ground, uh, it was a place where all the roads converged. Everybody that wanted to go from one large a body to the other large body of land had to go through this isthmus and consequently there's all kinds of travel coming, coming by sea there's all kinds of travel that's coming by way of roads and so there are people everywhere there are people constantly moving about this city it has a very international feel to it because of the ports because of the travel there's an intermixing of the races in this particular city, there's people from all different backgrounds and, and all different nationalities that come to this town. Probably most notable about the city of Corinth was the temple of Aphrodite. Uh, she was the goddess of love or beauty, pleasure, and procreation. It brought many people for the purpose of going to the temple of Aphrodite, but it also created a very low moral tone and a tremendous amount of sexual perversion that occurred inside that city. Uh, the temple of Aphrodite was atop the Acre Corinth. That's a mountain that overlooked the city of Corinth. One of the writers that 
writes about that particular temple says, and the temple of Aphrodite was so rich that it owned more than a thousand temple slaves, courtesans, whom both men and women had dedicated to the goddess. And therefore it was also on account of these women that the city was crowded with people and grew rich. So you could imagine the trade that's being plied by these who are working at this temple, uh, the sexual immorality that's occurring there. As a matter of fact, when you go through into 2 Corinthians, you hear the Apostle Paul giving a very strong warning against association with the paganism that's in that city. He talks about the danger of the paganism, and he says they're to come out from among them and be separate, he says, says the Lord. That's because of some of the things that were going on within that city. They indulged all kinds of sensual sin, and it was indulged in by the residents of the city as well as the visitors who would come to that city. Maybe as equally notable are the Isthmian Games. They're a smaller version of the Olympic Games. They occurred every two years. They were games that were uh, entered into in praise to the Greek god Poseidon. Uh, They had a stadium where they had the games that were carried out, a theater, and even a hippodrome where these games would take place. And prior to the observance of these games, they would gather all the athletes who were going to participate into a small building that wasn't far uh, from the Poseidon temple. And they would have to take an oath that they were going to abide by the rules. And if you didn't abide by the rules, then you would be disqualified. If you've been with us in this series, you know that's a word that Paul uses, the last verse of chapter 9. But these athletes would come and they would promise to abide by the rules, lest when they stood before the judges, they would be disqualified in the competition. There were things like foot races in wrestling There was boxing. There was the throwing of the discus and the javelin. There was the long jump. There were chariot races. And even, though you and I don't think of this as a sport, poetry reading and singing. And yet there were competitions related to those things as well. And the Isthmian Games were a big draw for people to come from all over to watch the athletes, these finely toned, these finely, these finely exercised athletes participating in these different competitions. Maybe something that would be especially interesting if we were to go to an ancient city like this and we were to be there during its heyday. One of the places that you would want to go is to the business center, the place that's the, you know, the place that has the greatest amount of buzz going on because the greatest number of people are in and out, and that's called the marketplace, the agora. The marketplace was probably where the Apostle Paul met Priscilla and Aquila. That's where Priscilla and Aquila had set up shop. They were tent makers. And that's where people came to meet with them. Either they made the tents right there or they were hired to go make the tents wherever they were needed. And Paul came to the city and was a tent maker along with Priscilla and Aquila. And that's the kind of things that would go on in this marketplace. It's an open air for the most part kind of a market. But there were buildings. It's this place where you could buy the meat and the food that you were going to eat. And some of that meat was meat that had come from the temples that were around, where they had offered animal sacrifices. 
And because it had been used in some other form first, that meat was often less expensive than the meat that came directly from the suppliers of meat. And often people would buy that meat offered to the idols. But that's where you'd find the meat market. That's where you'd find all of these others who would come plying their trades, uh, selling the things that they made, uh, offering themselves for the work that they, they would do. You would find some who worked in bronze and others in pottery and some in glass and others in leather. Uh, this was a, a, a place of mobility, a, a great mobility in the ancient world. Uh, and so you begin to see how busy this city could be with all the people coming in and leaving, with all the trade that's going on, with all the business in the marketplace, with the temple of Aphrodite plus other temples like Poseidon, other temples that were re represented there. You, you can imagine what that kind of a city would have been like. You might think of it as going to a place like New York or New Orleans or Las Vegas. It's that kind of a place with all the kind of travel that comes in and commerce that's going on and the selling of wares and the things that are available to people, some of them uh, unsavory things that are available to people. It's into that kind of a city that the Apostle Paul went. We, we read it, uh, about it in Acts chapter 18. In Acts chapter 18, Paul comes to the city of Corinth and he begins preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the result is the power of God is in the gospel, right? And the power of God is in the gospel as he preaches it. And people's lives begin to be changed by the gospel. They believe in Jesus and their lives begin to be transformed and are immediately transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And after a little while, there's enough of them. They're banding together. They're meeting together. And out of that nucleus of people is formed a church that exists now in the city of Corinth. It's probably not a large church in comparison to the number of people who came and went in the city. But it's a significant number of people to recognize that they were meeting together and they came to a single place in order to hear the teaching of the Scripture, in order to worship the Lord, in order to pray uh, for one another and to pray to the God of heaven uh, for the purpose of singing praises, for the purpose of baptism, and for the purpose of the observance of the Lord's table, and to be committed to one singular mission. And this church is birthed into existence. It's unfortunate that sometimes when churches are in a world, like all churches are in the world, they begin to, at times, take on the characteristics of the world around them. People are converted, and they bring some of those unconverted ways right into the church and it takes a while for the Lord to sanctify them and set them apart and make them more like Jesus Christ. And this church is growing and they're maturing and they're developing, but this is a church that's also marked by some difficulties and some trouble. Uh, there's a factious spirit within the congregation where the people are at odds with one another. Surprise, surprise. Wherever people are gathered together, you find these kinds of things isn't it true? Uh, sometimes the division that was occurring between them and the factions between them drew them into the courts in order to settle the disputes that were going on between them. There was a rivalry, a party rivalry that existed amongst them, and it was destroying the unity of Christ's body in that local church, even to the place where they would come to the Lord's table and prior to the observance of the Lord's Supper, they would have this love feast, just like a potluck dinner. 
And those who had more to bring were supposed to do so so that those who didn't have as much to bring would be able to have food and be able to eat. But those who came with much gorged themselves and left nothing for those that had very little. And that only added to the division that was happening within the congregation. One of the things that this early church boasted about was their knowledge. Some of them had matured quickly. Some of them had learned quickly. And they had grown much stronger in their faith. And they had this knowledge, if you will. And their knowledge provided them a certain degree of freedom. They understood that the idols were nothing. And they understood that the meat that was offered to idols really didn't mean anything. There's nothing behind those idols besides the demons. There's nothing behind those idols. The idol is not a true God, does not represent a true God. There is nothing behind those idols. But the result is that some of them were using their freedoms and their liberties in a way that harmed younger believers and caused them to stumble and to fall away from the faith in some cases, or it caused them to hinder the expanse of the gospel because people watched them and saw what they were doing, and they said, is that the way a Christian should act, and is that how Christianity is lived out? And they would hinder the expanse of the gospel in the city by the exercise of their knowledge and their freedom. And as you think about this city that's bustling with people and with all of these vices that are available to them, you begin to understand what is the heart of these 13 verses that we're going to look at today. Just for a moment, look at verse 12. We're going to read all of them in a moment. Just look at verse 12. This is the heart of these 13 verses. You're going to understand better when you understand what he's aiming at. And this is his target. Therefore, he says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Some of them would go up to the temple of Aphrodite for some of the meals that would occur after the offerings and after the worship. And they would eat there at the tables with those who were worshiping the false god, believing and knowing that that god was nothing, knowing that the meat was just meat, but they were living in such a way that they thought they were above the temptation. They thought they were beyond being led astray. They thought they were strong enough that they wouldn't succumb to the temptations that surrounded them. And the Apostle Paul comes in these 13 verses, and he says to them, I want you to take heed. You think you stand, but you better take heed lest you fall. You better stop and not think so highly of yourselves and think that you're stronger than others and that somehow you'll be able to overcome where everybody else hasn't been able to overcome. You better stop and think about the danger of interacting with some of these temptations. And as I mentioned earlier, it's why in 2 Corinthians 6, he says, come out from among them. Be separate, says the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing. Because he understands, Paul understands the power of the temptation to the lusts that are within all of us. Now I want you to follow with me, beginning in chapter 10, verse 1. And I want you to see how Paul illustrates the danger in which they, in which they are living. And he's going to do that by using his own people, the nation of Israel, as an example. And I'm going to point out some words to you that I want you to specifically note, maybe even circle or underline in your Bible, because they are key 
to you understanding what Paul is driving home when he gets to verse 12. He says, moreover, brethren, verse 1, I do not want you to be unaware that all, and I want you to circle the word all every time you see it. You're going to find it five times in four verses. To be unaware that all our fathers, all our fathers were under the cloud. Let's stop there for a moment. What does he mean under the cloud? Well, you remember when God led the children of Israel out of Egypt and took them up to the Red Sea and then through the Red Sea and out into the desert where they would receive the law and ultimately just to the precipice of the promised land that God gave them his presence. At nighttime, it was a pillar of fire. In the day, it was a cloud. At night, it provided light and heat in the cold, in, in the cold desert. At day, it provided his presence and his guidance as they would move along the way. And they were under the cloud. And how many were under the cloud? All of them were under the cloud. He continues. And all, he says, uh, all our fathers are under the cloud. And all, there's the second all, passed through the sea. How many passed through the Red Sea? All of them passed through the Red Sea. You remember Moses stands at the edge of the waters and he holds forth the rod that God had given to him and suddenly the waters begin to part. I don't know if it's like it was with Charlton Heston or not, but the waters begin to part and the wind begins to dry out the ground across the middle of that uh, Red Sea so that the people can walk down into that bed and they can walk out the other side. And as you know, the pillar of fire by night is preventing the Egyptian army from coming too close until the Egyptian army is in the middle of the sea. And all of the children of Israel are on the other side. And he raises his rod and again, the waters come together and all of the Egyptian army is destroyed in the midst of that sea. And how many passed through the sea? All of them did. Or in verse 2, he says, all, there's a third time, were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Being baptized into Moses is symbolic of baptism into Christ. We are literally baptized into Christ when we trust in him as our Savior. We are symbolically baptized into Christ when we're baptized in the waters of a baptistry. And they were symbolically baptized into Moses because they're under the cloud and they're under the waters. And it was all of them that were baptized into Moses. Notice verse 3, you find the fourth time, all, all ate the same spiritual food and all there's the, there's the fifth time, drank the same spiritual drink. You remember how God provided for them? They'd get up every morning except for the Sabbath. They would get up every morning and they would go out and they would find manna that was laying on the ground and they would pick up the manna and they couldn't keep it overnight. They had to use it that particular day, but every day God provided for them enough and he provided enough on Friday for the uh, for the Sabbath day, so they didn't have to gather anything on the Sabbath day. But for every day, God provided. And when they were hungry, when they were, when they were thirsty, what did God do? He had Moses one, one time to strike the rock, and then he told him a second time to speak to it, though he struck the rock instead. And what comes out of the rock? Water comes out of the rock. And do you notice what he says here about this spiritual food and this spiritual drink in the middle of verse 4, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Who was with them? 
Christ was with them. Who was their provider? Christ was the provider. Can I tell you today that if you're trying to eat of this world, the things that this world provides to satisfy your eternal soul, it will never do so. You will always be empty. You will always be starved by what this world has to offer. If you're thirsty for something more than what you're experiencing in the world in which we live, can I just tell you that you will always be thirsty? You will always feel parched and dry by what this world provides. The only one who can truly satisfy, whether it's the spiritual hunger or the spiritual thirst we have, is Christ in Christ alone. I can't recommend to you enough today, if you've never trusted in Jesus for eternal life, you need to come to Jesus, the one who is the bread of life, the one who is the water from which you will drink and you will never thirst again. And they all drank this water and they all ate this food. But now I want you to notice carefully, when we get to verse 5, it's going to change and it's going to change very quickly. Remember what the thrust of this passage is? Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You that think that you're beyond the temptation, you that think that you could never fall away, you that think that getting close to, as close to as possible, the sin of this world, and you won't be burned by getting close to that sin. Everybody who thinks you can dabble with it and play with it and have fun with it, but it won't harm you in doing so, he says all of them had all of these blessings that God had provided to all of them. But you notice verse 5, but with, notice the word, most of them, most of them, God was not well pleased. Now, you know what happens, don't you? Because God was not well pleased with them. Because they thought they were beyond the temptation. They thought they were beyond following, falling away. That it could never happen to us. It could never happen to us. God said, that's not true. Most of them, most of them, their bodies were left laying in the desert and never entered the promised land. Remember what God did for 40 years because of their unbelief. For 40 years, God caused the children of Israel to wander in a circle. Their clothes never wore out. They had food provided for them every day, but they wandered in a circle. Instead of going forward into the promised land that flowed with milk and honey, they wandered out here in the desert because they didn't believe God until everybody that was 20 years of age, all the Young men that were of warrior age, 20 years of age and older, died. And the next generation rose up. And Joshua comes to, 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 to leadership. And Joshua ultimately leads them into the promised land. Most of them, you could just about say nearly all of them, died out here in the desert. Let me ask you a question. Let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Is there anybody here who can't fall? Is there anybody here who cannot sin? Is there anybody here that can overcome temptation in your own strength and in your own ability? Is there anybody here that's greater than the temptations that are around you? I mean, in yourself, you are greater than the temptations around you? Well, the children of Israel thought highly of themselves, but most of them ended up dying in the desert even though they all experienced the multiplied blessings of God to them again and again and again.
You notice he goes on, verse 6. Now these things, notice the word coming up, became our examples. If you look over at verse 11, we're coming back to verse 7 in a moment. Now all these things happened to them as examples. They happen as examples. Twice he says it. I want you to see them and I want you to learn from them, Corinthians. My own people who had all of these incredible blessings that were bestowed upon them, they were saved by God out of Egypt. They were provided for in every way. They had multiplied blessings that surrounded them and yet most of them ended up dying in the desert because they didn't believe God and they didn't walk with God. And they are my example to you. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Are you too strong for temptation? Can you play and dabble with the things of this world and the evil of the world around us and it not harm you? Did it not affect you in some fashion? It affected the nation of Israel. All of them had the blessings, but most of them, God was displeased with them. He continues using this nation as an example. Verse 6, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as some of them. Hey, listen, you know what happens? After they've had all of these multiplied blessings, they get to the, uh, the Mount Sinai and God gives to them the law and Moses is gone for 40 days and 40 nights and the people begin to think, hmm, what's happened to Moses? We're concerned that he's not ever going to come back. And they convince Aaron to take the gold ear earrings and the gold jewelry and melt it down and make a golden calf. And they begin to dance around the calf. They begin to dance as if that calf is now their God. Can you imagine people who have just been delivered with such incredible, miraculous power, who have experienced such marvelous blessings from God, and yet now here they are just days later, just a few weeks later, now here they are dancing around a golden calf? Can you fall away? He goes on. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. I just have to note, note for you that the Greek word to play means to laugh or to make sport. It's about leisure. It's, it's about this whole matter of recreation. They, they, they rose up to dance and play and have parties around this golden calf. How can that be? How can that be? He continues, verse 8, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. Wow, the Moabite women seduced the Israelite men into these sexual relationships. And then out of those sexual relationships, they introduced them to the false gods of the Moabites. How can that be? How can it be that people that just weeks or months before have been delivered by God and had multiple blessings one after another who've seen the presence of God and who've been baptized into Moses, how is it possible that they could do such an evil thing? And yet at the middle of verse 8 it says, Some of them, some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Numbers says there were 24,000. 
Why the discrepancy? Because that's 23,000 in one day. There were at least 1,000 more that died in the following days, and that didn't include, the 23,000 didn't include the number of leaders that died. That was just the people themselves that died, so that when you get the total number together, 24,000 people died. Or verse 9, nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. You remember when they complained to Moses? You brought us out here into the wilderness to let us die. We'd have rather stayed in Egypt than to be out here. You brought us out here to die. And what does God do? God sends the fiery serpents, and the people are bitten by the fiery serpents, and they die from the poison of the fiery serpents. And then God gives the remedy. He takes one of those takes the image of one of those fiery serpents and makes it into a bronze and puts it on a pole and he says to everybody if you look if you look to this fiery serpent this bronze serpent you will be saved from those snake bites by the way you do understand that that becomes the illustration of the cross of Jesus in John chapter 3 he says and I if I be lifted up you hear those words And all you have to do is be willing to look. And how is it possible that these people could tempt God in these kinds of situations? Don't you see the cloud? Don't you see the fire? Haven't you been through these multiplied blessings? Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. He goes on, verse 10, nor complain. I find at least 10 times in that journey from Egypt to the edge of the promised land where the children of Israel complained. And it says some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. How in the world can that happen? How is it possible that people who name the name of Christ and say they follow Jesus and love Jesus can fall away? so easily how is it that you think that you can dabble with the fire of sin and it's not going to be brought into your lap and burn you how is it you think that the associations that you have with people you know you shouldn't have and you think somehow you're going to walk away unstained by that association how is that possible i mean the children of israel couldn't do it and the people in corinth aren't going to be able to do it And Paul comes and says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You better pay attention here. You better take heed to this matter lest you fall as well if the nation of Israel, most of them, lost their lives in the process of the journey from Egypt to Israel. You think, Corinthians, you're going to get away with dabbling with the sinfulness and the vices that are in that city? Well, Pastor, I just like to get involved with the gray machines that are around the various little places that are around us and just spend a little money here or there. I like to just sip a little alcohol. I don't really drink it to any significant amounts. I like to be friendly with the people that aren't my spouse, the opposite sex that isn't my spouse, but it's no big deal that we ride off together and do things alone. Paul comes and says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. 
Back up to verse 11. We didn't read it all, but let me read it for you. No, all these things happened to them. All these things happened to them. Why is Paul talking about these things? Because they are examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We're living in the last days. We're living in the day of grace. The next part is the tribulation to come. We're here at the end of the ages. If anybody needs to hear it, we desperately need to hear it. And then he gives the instruction in verse 13. He says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful. Aren't we grateful for that? God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now I want to give you four thoughts about overcoming temptation from the counsel of the Apostle Paul. First of all, Paul counsels that we should walk humbly with our God. We should walk humbly with our God. Did you notice those words in verse 12 that I've quoted again and again? Let him who thinks he stands. Do you think too highly of yourself? Do you think that you're too mature, that you're too grown in the faith, that you, knew too, you know too much Scripture, that you've walked too long with the Lord, that somehow you can never su succumb to the temptations that are around you so that you can let down your guard and you can play a little more on the fringes than everybody else is able to play on the fringes? That's not what the Scripture teaches. The Scripture teaches that every one of us have to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and we have to recognize that we're not greater than the temptations that are around us every day. And we have to understand that any one of us could yield to those temptations just as easily as somebody much younger in the faith than ourselves. And if you don't believe that, have you not watched the news over the last years of people who were in the ministry, who stood in the pulpit, who played with fire and got burned? We have to walk humbly before our God and not think that somehow we are beyond that level of temptation so that we're not bothered by it. Let me put this in practical terms. Think of this in practical terms. When your kids miss a lot of church and you immerse them in other activities, you're saying, in essence, I'm strong enough to raise godly children without the Lord's church. Or when you keep having private encounters and conversations with someone that's, uh, that's not your spouse, you're saying, in essence, I'm strong enough to play with sexual fire without getting burned. Or when you fail to read the Bible, pray, serve, and give, you're saying, I'm strong enough to do life without God. I don't know how it is, but some people wrongly think that the Lord helps those who help themselves. You do know that's not in the Bible. The Lord helps those who help themselves. But if 10.13 says anything, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says anything, it says the Lord helps those who humbly acknowledge they need his help. And every single day you walk with God. You walk with God. That means... You have to acknowledge that you're weak enough to say, I can't skip church and I can't miss my Bible study and I can't miss reading the scripture and I can't go without prayer this morning. I need to walk humbly with God every single day. I don't think to myself that I'm strong enough to endure 
on my own. When I think about walking with God, I can't help but think of the man Enoch. I love that story. I talk probably too much about it, but I love that story. And I love that story because of the way it describes Enoch. It says that he walked with God and he was not, for God took him. What a way to go home. What a way to go to heaven. He just walking with God one day and God says, why don't you come to my house rather than yours? And God just takes him home. We have to walk humbly with our God. Get out of the pride. Get out of the arrogance. Don't listen to the world around you who says you'll never succumb to this. You ask that to the drug addict who stood with those kids and decided to take one huff of that, of that marijuana and before long, they were completely hooked onto things that were stronger and that ended up destroying their lives. And their families' hearts were broken again and again and again. Number two, Paul counsels as well that we have to live carefully in this world. We have to live carefully. Not only walk humbly with our God, we have to live carefully in this world. Do you follow what he says in verse 12? Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take Heed, pay attention, take heed, lest he fall. We have to live carefully in this world. Do you realize that there are no temptations that are unique? Oh, they might seem unique. They might be different than they were. First century temptations to 21st century temptations may present themselves in a little bit of a different way, but ultimately they're all the same. Paul says here in verse 13, they are common to man Satan doesn't know anything new. They're common to man. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the cravings of the flesh, the covetousness of the eyes, the conceitedness of pride, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. You realize that you have three enemies in this world? Do you know that? Let me just read it to you. Ephesians chapter 2. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Thank God. In which you also once walked according to the course of this world. The world is one of your enemies. According to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. The devil is one of your enemies. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh. Your flesh is one of your enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Don't you think for a moment that through one of those means that Satan uses, whether you're looking at the story of Eve in the Garden of Eden or you're reading, reading the story of Jesus when he's taken out into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan, it all fits into those three categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. The world is not your friend. Your flesh has to be subdued. And lived in submission to God. And the devil, he's after you. It says Satan as a roaring lion walks about seeking whom he may. You know the next word? Hey, he, didn't just want to, he doesn't want to just hamstring you for a little while. He wants to devour you. He wants to take you down all together. You don't think that's possible? Think about Peter for a moment. In the upper room, Peter was with the other disciples. Judas has left the room to go betray Jesus. 
Jesus talks to his disciples. We get most of that from John 14 to 17, what Jesus had to say to his disciples. But do you remember when Jesus started talking about he was going to go away and he was going to die? There was one of those in that room that day who stood up and said, no way. We're not going to let that happen. And his name was Peter. And Jesus says, before the cock crows three times, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. Before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And then they ultimately leave the room and they go out to the garden of Gethsemane, right? Go out to the garden of Gethsemane. He leaves some of the disciples just outside the garden. He takes Peter, James, and John a little further into the garden. And then Jesus goes further than that, and he falls down, and he begins to pray, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And when he finishes praying, sweating drops of blood, he comes back, and Peter, James, and John are sound asleep. And it's interesting what it says to them. In verse 40 of chapter 26, then he came to the disciples, found them sleeping, and said to Peter, he says to Peter, not the other ones. He says to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? You say, Pastor, he's just re rebuking him because he's tired. I mean, he's got his eyes closed. He's in sleep. No, that's not what the rebuke is about. It has been less than an hour since Peter had said, I will never deny you, that Peter has already abandoned Jesus in sleep. And didn't stay awake to pray. Within an hour, he had already abandoned Jesus. It'll be the next morning that he'll deny him those three times on one occasion while he's warming his hands by the fire. But he's already indicated the direction of his heart before that ever occurs all the way back at the garden. Peter! You just told me that you would never abandon me and you'd never let me die. Peter, what are you doing asleep? Or think about Noah, the man who preached for 120 years. He's called the preacher of righteousness. The only converts were his own sons and their daughters, excuse me, their, uh, their wives. It was just the eight of them on the ark that were saved alive, that came off the ark when the waters finally abated. And he becomes a farmer, Genesis says. And he raises grapes, and he begins to harvest the grapes. And what you do with, I don't know what you do with grapes. You crush the grapes, and you get the juice out of the grapes. And you know what happens? He gets drunk. And then something horrible happens that we're not told exactly what it is that occurred, but it results in a curse on one of his grandsons. Can you imagine a man like Noah, and yet Noah fell? Or how about David? The man, the Scripture says, is a man after God's own heart. When he should have been out battling with his troops, is walking on the rooftop of his house, and he looks over and he sees a woman, Bathsheba, bathing, and rather than turn his eyes away, he sins for her and commits adultery with her. Live carefully in this world. Live carefully in this world. He says that we're to take heed we're to take heed, be, be cautious, be, be conscious of what's going on around you. One of the largest freshwater turtles is the alligator snapping turtle. These turtles are so massive that some of them will weigh as much as 200 pounds. Mind you, this is a freshwater turtle. And they primarily eat fish. 
They are so big and so strong that they have been known to catch small alligators and eat them. But primarily, it's fish. And what the turtle will do is lay on the floor of the lake or the floor of the river. It's why I don't swim in lakes and rivers. They'll lay on the lake and on the floor of the lake and on the floor of the river. You can't even see them. You don't even know what it is that's on the, on the floor. They blend in and they have their mouth open. And on the end of their tongue is a little appendage. It's worm-shaped, it's pink, and it's very small. And the turtle moves his tongue so that it looks like a worm in the water. And the fish swims toward the worm and doesn't know that he's swimming right into the claws and right into the open mouth of the turtle. And he closes down and he can't escape and he traps the fish. That's how temptation works. That's, That's how temptation works. It's always guised as something that's pleasurable and desirable. It's always disguised. The most deadly temptations of Satan are always disguised as something that's inviting and something that you desire. And you don't understand the full extent of what Satan is going to do in devouring you in the process. We have to live carefully in this world. Number three, Paul counsels that they have to trust confidently in his help. They have to trust confidently in his help. Look at verse 13. He goes on. From those who think too highly of themselves, they have to take heed, be careful, be cautious, be watching. No temptation has overtaken you except as a common demand, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape. You see it? Make the way of escape. Hey, it's important to notice the definite articles, but with the temptation will also make the the way of escape. There's a particular way of escape for the particular temptation that's coming towards you and is making its play for you. The word escape pictures an army that's trapped in the mountains, and there's only one escape through a little pass, and God always has a little pass through the midst of the mountains to make it possible for you to escape that temptation. Sometimes that's by avoiding the temptation. It's by avoiding it. Romans 13, 14 says, make no provision for the flesh. You know what I mean by that? If you're having trouble eating too many sweets, don't make cookies and put them on the countertop. (laughs) Don't even buy the the rolls of cookies or the boxes where you make the cookies. Don't even buy them and put them in your pantry. Don't make cookies. Don't make provision for your flesh. There was a dad that ordered his son not to swim in the canal. And the son said, okay, dad. But he came home that evening carrying a wet bathing suit. And the father demanded to know, where have you been? And the boy answered, swimming in the canal. And his father replied, didn't I tell you not to swim there? Yes, sir, the boy said. Then why did you, the father asked. Well, the boy explained. Listen. Well, Dad, I had my bathing suit with me, and I couldn't resist the temptation. 
And the father questioned, well, why did you take your bathing suit with you? And the boy replied, so I'd be prepared to swim in case I was tempted. And if you didn't get that, that's circular thinking. In other words, he was planning to swim all the time. He never planned not to swim. And if he was going to be tempted to swim, he should have avoided it. It's been said, now listen carefully because this is really important. I hope your kids are listening to this. It's been said that a fool will not learn from his mistakes. A smart man will learn from his mistakes. But a wise man learns from the mistakes of others. And how much better is it to be wise and learn from the mistakes of others. Learn to avoid it. I see what it did to you. I see how it affected you. I see what it did to your marriage. I see what it did to your life. I see where it took you in life. I'm going to avoid it. Number two, flee it. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 says, flee also youthful lusts. You know what he means by flee? Run away from it as fast as you can, as far as you can, to make sure you're not anywhere near where it is. Flee it. Isn't that what Joseph did? He's serving in Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife keeps making a play for him again and again, and uh, Joseph keeps turning down Potiphar's wife over and over, says, no way, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to violate my my, my God. I'm not going to violate Potiphar's trust. I'm not going to do that until one day he's working in the house, and she lays a hand on him and says, you're going to sleep with me. And he runs out of the house, and he leaves his coat behind. And then he gets lied about, and he ends up in jail. But that's what you do when you find yourself in temptation that you can't avoid. You run away from it. You don't stand there with it. You don't say, well, I'm going to stand here and see if I can. No, you don't do that. If you can get away from it, you get away, and finally you resist it. You resist it. That's what he's talking about in verse 13. Go back to it for just a moment. Verse 13, at the end of the verse, he'll make the way of escape that you may be able, here it is, to bear it. Sometimes you can't avoid it, and sometimes you can't flee from it, but you can always resist it, and God will make a path through the mountains for you to be able to escape so that you'll be able to endure it. Isn't that what James 4, 7 means? Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Temptation is no small deal. Temptation destroys people's lives. I've been a pastor a long time, and I think the hardest thing for me to to watch as a pastor, especially being in one church for so long, is when I see people that I've poured my life into and our church has poured our lives into who yield to the temptation and they get overtaken and they're drawn away and they fall away and too often never come back. We all had the blessings. We all had the benefits. We were all baptized into Christ. We were all made to drink of the same spiritual, uh, drink, uh, the same spiritual water. The same, we all enjoyed the same spiritual food. We all had these multiplied blessings, but there were some of us who didn't think it was a big deal to play along the edges, or maybe it was the peer pressure 
the people around us that just kept putting the pressure on us until finally we saw that little worm dangling, but it wasn't really a worm at all. It was Satan ready to grab us and to take us down. And he led us away from the Christ we loved and the Christ we served, and he took us to places we never, ever thought we'd go. You realize nobody ever starts taking drugs to be a drug addict. But they get caught because that hook has a barb on it and you cannot get that hook out easily once it's embedded in your mouth. And finally, number four, own quickly all your failures. And some of us are here today, we're dressed in our Sunday clothes, we look good, we've got a big smile on, we've been singing the songs, you've been listening to the preaching, and in your heart you know that you know you've been caught. You've been caught in the temptation, and you've been pulled away and taken away, and God is speaking to you. By the way, can I show you one more thing? Will you give me two more minutes? Will you go back to the text? Just go back to the text here for a moment. Some people wonder why are their lives are a mess. Some of it is just we live in a sin-cursed world. Some of it is just the trials and the tribulations of life itself. And I'm not the judge as to whether it's that or something different, but I want you to notice. I want you to go back to the text, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want you to notice at the end of verse, of, of verse 8, it says 23,000 fell. Verse 9, at the end of the text, and were destroyed by servants. Will you notice at the end of verse 10, and were destroyed by the destroyer. You can't walk away from God as a child of God and it not cost you in the process. He says that all that he loves, he disciplines. He uses the word chasten. All that he loves, he chastens. And if you're free of chastening, he says, you're not one of mine. You're somebody else's child. You're not one of mine. But there are those today who are looking around and they're asking, why is my life a mess? It may just be the trials and the tribulations of living in a sin-cursed world and God's trying to build your faith and build you to be a stronger believer. Or it may be that somewhere along the way you've yielded to the temptation and you've fallen away and you're suffering the effects of the destroyer in your life. So that this last point is so very important. Own quickly all your failures. When you yield to temptation and your conscience is screaming at you and conviction is working on your heart in those moments, as quickly as you can, you, you do exact, exactly what 1 John 1, 9 says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. You heard that phrase before? He's not only faithful to lead us out of the temptation. If we've yielded to the temptation, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some people would have the destroyer removed from their lives if they just said, God, I was wrong. Forgive me. I was wrong. Forgive me. I sinned and I sinned against you. 
And God stands ready because he's faithful. He stands ready to forgive his children. I know we don't sing a lot of old hymns anymore. I know a lot of you like it. By the way, we sung an old hymn this morning. But there's an old hymn that I thought about singing for you this morning, and then Mary talked me out of it. <laughs> she didn't really do that. I needed somebody to blame it on, like Adam, like Eve and Adam blamed it on somebody. It's an old song, and I'm going to read you the words to the song. Some of you are going to know it. Those of you that don't know it, you ought to go home and Google it and listen to it. It's an old song, but the words are still true. Listen. Yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. Each victory will help you some other to win. Fight valiantly onward, evil passions subdue. Look ever to Jesus, he will carry you through. Then there's a chorus. Shun evil companions, bad language disdain. God's name hold in reverence, nor take it in vain. Be thoughtful and earnest, kind-hearted and true. Look ever to Jesus. He will carry you through. And then the chorus. And then the third verse. To him that overcometh, God giveth a crown. Through faith we will conquer, though often cast down. He who is our Savior, our strength will renew. Look ever to Jesus. He will carry you through. And that chorus that you sing three times... Ask the Savior to help you, comfort, strengthen, and keep you. He is willing to aid you. He will carry you through. Yield not to temptation.